Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. started our 22 days of prayer, and we're almost through. Uh, you guys have been enjoying just seeking God together, and uh, I know tomorrow is the last day, so we're almost there, uh, And uh, but I just believe that this is going to be something so special for our church as God is uniting our hearts together, and uh, so today we're just kind of uh, king off of, uh, I think, yesterday's uh, devotional, just uh, to really press in and continue what God began 22 days ago, uh, to keep that moving forward as we go through the rest of the year. And I, I know that it's super cold in here. I was so nervous that as we were playing, I had to wear my gloves all morning because I could barely hold my guitar pick. My hands are so cold. So I don't want to be long today, but I want to give God the opportunity to speak and to work and to move because I believe that as many distractions as we have coming in here that are here today, God still has something special for us. And so if we could maybe for a second try to tune out all the distractions, all the frustrations, all the things that are vying for our attention, and really try to lean into what the Spirit of God is saying and doing. I know that it's going to be special for us today. As we are worshiping, um, I just ask the Lord, God, what are you saying? What do you... What do you want to speak into? What do you want to press into? And um, he just started laying people on my heart. And I got just a, a couple of visions of, of some of you as we we're worshiping. But the, the message that and the person I feel like God wants me to encourage this morning is Becky. Becky, as we were uh, praying, I just, I just saw you in your house. And you're kneeling down and you're praying. I don't know if you kneel down at your bedside and hold your hands like this when you pray. But I just got a sense that... The Lord was saying that you're a prayer warrior, and he's just so delighted in your prayer that it brings you so much joy when you pray, that there's like this, this joy that comes up. It's not like a burdensome thing. It's a joyous thing, and God is just delighted in you in the way that you pray and that your prayers are not uh, falling on deaf ears. So the Lord wants me to encourage you that God hears you when you pray. And so I don't know if you've been feeling distant from God or that there's something you've been pressing into that you just haven't got a word yet, but God hears you and he knows what's on your heart and he's delighted uh, with the way you pursue him in your quiet space. So I just want to bless you with that this morning and, um, and encourage you there. Um, yes. Amen. So um, just an awesome thing. God knows us so well and um, I just love how he encourages the body of Christ. So today we're talking about tasting and seeing. One of my favorite topics, because I have a food problem. I don't know if you know me, but I like to eat. And so anytime the Bible says taste and see, I'm like, amen, amen, amen. I told my wife, I was like, I wanted to go to Golden Corral for my birthday. And she's like, that's a bad idea. So, you know, when you're trying, when you're, when you got goals and you're trying to be a, uh, you know, controlled in the area of uh, food, buffets are not a good idea. Um, I heard one time the word buffet, the bu word buffet actually stands for something. You know what it stands for? Big, ugly people or big, ugly, fat folks eating together is what it stand stands for. Buffet. Big, ugly, fat folks eating together. So let that be some conviction for you today if you are planning on a buffet after lunch or after service today. But um, a few years ago, my family went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for the first time uh, as a family, family vacation. And it's kind of an interesting um, story how we got there. I have an aunt and uncle that live in the area. And my family, on my side of the family, we don't normally get together. We don't have family reunions. Uh, very rarely do we see each other, don't even really talk on the phone. Um, it was a rare thing to get Christmas cards and things like that. We just don't have a close-knit family. But my daughter Jocelyn was invited to go to Myrtle Beach with a friend. I guess they had some type of softball tournament or some type of sporting event down there. And she got invited just to go hang out. And she knew my aunt and uncle lived down there, and she had never met them before. And so I, I think she maybe called me and asked me for their number. I don't, I don't know what the deal was. But out of nowhere, she just called them, and they went and picked her up for lunch. 
and uh, and so she got reacquainted with them, and that uh, it opened up an opportunity, an invitation for our family to go down and, and spend some time with them. And it was just kind of an awesome time to get together uh, with uh, my uh, my family that I haven't seen in a long time. The kids got to meet my aunt and uncle, and and they were such great hosts. So we got to go to the beaches and go around uh, town. It was a lot of fun. But uh, while we were there, um, we, we spent evenings kind of hanging out at the house. And my, my kids weren't as big as they are now. It was a few years ago. But we decided to uh, play a game after dinner one time. And it's a game that my kids invented, I think, at their grandparents' house. And it involves a lot of risk. Um, it, it, it requires you to be willing to trust everyone else in the room with really your, your well-being. It requires maybe even a little insanity. And when I tell you the name of this game, you're going to know exactly why it would require that because the game is called What's in Your Mouth? What's in your mouth? Now, when my kids come to me and say, I want to play a game, and it's called What's in Your Mouth, I'm like, What's in your brain? That's, that's what I am thinking. Well, the, the whole point of the game is you, you separate into teams. Somebody gets blindfolded, and the other person gets to go to the fridge and make any type of concoction on the edge of a spoon and put it in your mouth, and then you have to guess what's in your mouth. And if you guess correctly, you get a point. Well, my uncle was a really smart man. He decided he wasn't going to play, which made it uneven. So that allowed me to bow out also. So I, I get to courageously not participate. And, uh, but they were playing, and, and you bless their heart, my, my aunt and my cousins, man, they had a good time. And... and uh, I think the only person that ended up gagging at one point was my son Asher when he got a mouthful of mustard, and he doesn't like mustard. But, but needless to say, in order to have that memory, which we'll cherish forever because it was a lot of fun, it was a, we had a lot of laughs, there had to be some risk. There had to be uh, some just stepping out into the unknown and maybe trying something that you wouldn't expect, and maybe trust in someone you don't really trust that much with an opportunity to take care of you. Now, they weren't always mean. Sometimes there was a spoonful of, like, hot fudge and caramel syrup and, and stuff like that. That was really good. But then on the occasion, you might end up with a spoonful of mustard and liver and something else attached to it. I don't know. But to win the game, it definitely takes risk. You can't win without tasting and guessing what's in your mouth. You can't win the game. So this week, it was all about, in our, in our devotional, it was all about looking forward. Asking God, God, what are you saying to me? What are you speaking? What are you leading me to do? How do you want me to get involved? How do you want me to plug in? What's the next step in my life? And then beginning to take steps to move forward into whatever that is. Now, for many of us, we've, we've had a church experience. We have our own lives. We have everything kind of planned out, what we're going to do day to day. But when we stop and we ask God, okay, God, what do you want from me? There's a little nervousness because we're, if, if we're honest, we're afraid he might ask us to do something that might cause us to have to risk. Mostly our comfort. Mostly our, our control, because we're trying to manage our lives and our circumstances. And so we often don't pray that prayer, God, wherever you lead me, I'll follow. Where do you want me to go? Because we're afraid he's going to mess up our plans. We're, we're afraid of what he might ask us to do. But following Jesus, this Christian life is all about following Jesus. He's our shepherd. He's leading us. He's speaking. He's He's guiding. The entirety of the Christian life is a walk of faith. The entirety of the Christian life. Not some of it. All of it. All of it is a walk of faith. 
So much so, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 says, it's impossible to please God without faith. That means if you don't have it, you're not pleasing Him. That's, that's an important verse to understand. So the entirety of the Christian life is one of faith. Now, Martin Luther is this really important guy in church history. He was a Catholic priest, and he got this, to this place in his life where he's like, there's got to be something more than all this religion that we're involved in. And so he started actually reading the Bible. Go figure. And as he's reading the Bible, he became incredibly convicted in his spirit that there's more to the Christian life than just following a bunch of religious rules and doing a bunch of religious works. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this is the verse, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back for Martin Luther. In Romans 1, 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Somebody say faith for faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther read these words and was convicted, and he began to see this religious system he was involved in from a new perspective, and he started to write down his thoughts on a document called the 95 Theses. He took that and he nailed it to the Wittenberg a church door, and that became the start of the Protestant Reformation, where people began to wake up and realize, oh, a relationship with God is not ed like my allegiance to this church. The relationship with God is my allegiance to Jesus, and so I'm going to begin following Jesus and giving him my heart and letting my faith be what leads me in this relationship with God, not the rules and regulations that an organization has to put upon me. And so he began to stand against just all the religious ideologies of the day, and it allowed people to break away from a system keeping them basically enslaved to a group of people who were important, and allowed them to finally encounter the Spirit of God with an authentic living relationship that's built on faith. And so faith is a huge deal. Without faith... It's impossible to please God. You can be the most religious person in the room. You can do all the religious things, but not be pleasing God because faith isn't a part of the equation. Faith is what motivates us to do what we do as children of God. It's the cornerstone of holding fast to what we believe. It establishes our relationship with God. Think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Whoever believes will not perish. Right? You can't even have a relationship with God without faith. Faith is the cornerstone of everything we do. It is essential. And without risk, you cannot have faith. Without risk, you can't have faith. Well, what do, you, what do you mean? It means if you're not risking something, then it's not faith. It's not, it's not trusting in something outside of yourself. In order to have faith, there has to be an element of risk. Where you say, I'm going to step out of myself and I'm going to believe God beyond what I could ask or think or wrap my head around. I'm going to trust in who he is. I'm going to trust in his promises, even though everything in my life looks like the opposite. It, to be honest, it's like something I'm, I'm wrestling with this week. Saying, God, I know this is what you've said. Here's what I'm experiencing. It doesn't look like it's going the way I want it to go, but I'm going to trust you anyways. It's, it's a trust that overcomes everything that we can wrap our mind around in the moment. It takes all the authority and power out of our hands and places it in the hands of Almighty God. Faith is what motivates us. If you think about all the big icons of the Bible, and you look at, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, and we call this the hall of faith in, in the Christianity, as you read about all these different people and how faith was what worked in their lives, you think of Abraham. What was it about Abraham's life? His life was marked by faith. 
Why? Because he had to risk something. He had to risk his hometown, his land, and he had to risk his sons when God called him to offer up Isaac. Think of Joseph. What, would, what did Joseph have to risk? Joseph risked his freedom. He said, I believe God's promises. That got him sold into slavery and thrown into prison. For Moses, it was his reputation. He was supposed to be this great leader. But one failure in his leadership caused him to run out into the desert. And now God was saying, no, you need to go back and do what I've called you to do. And he's like, well, what if they don't follow me? What if, what if they don't believe in me? For Daniel, he was risking the lion's den. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was the fiery furnace. For the prophets of the Old Testament, it was their influence. For David, it was a giant and a king. For the disciples, it was their livelihoods and comfort. For Jesus Christ, it was everything. There's an element of risk. If, if, if you wonder, like, how were these people able to do these great things? Was it because they had their lives all together? No, most of them were a mess. But God used them because they decided to trust him over their circumstances. I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what. Every great story, every great person of faith we read about did what they did because their lives were filled with faith in the faithfulness of God. And as they moved forward in faith, the power of the Spirit of God came upon them to accomplish wonders. And beloved, God wants to do the same thing in our lives. The pages of the Bible are filled with stories of people who inspire us to do what, and to participate with what God can do through us if we truly walk in that type of faith. And so, faith really is courage. It's following God, being obedient, stepping out in the face of fear. It's choosing to be courageous when everything is stacked against you. So I believe that these people we read about, they were able to do what they did because along the way they discovered something. They discovered the goodness of the Lord. They discovered the goodness of the Lord. As we talked about last week, God is leading us from glory to glory. Aren't you thankful that God's changing our name, changing our reputation, changing our past mistakes? And leading us to a new place where we can encounter his goodness at another level. He's changing from glory to glory. Every encounter that we have with God, every miracle, every breakthrough we experience, it opens the door for us to experience in even greater levels the revelation of God's goodness. Oh man, I, I just, God is so good. He's done all these things in my life. But then he does something else. And we're like, oh I didn't, I didn't realize that God was that good. And then he does something else, and you're like, oh, man. He did this over here, but, man, oh, my gosh, God. Like, every time we encounter God, there's a new level of his goodness that we experience. And on day 20 of our 22 days of prayer, the one on tasting and seeing, I mentioned David. David is an interesting man, had a, had a very interesting life. If you... Go back into First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. You read about David's origins and all the things that happened while he was a king. It's very interesting, especially some of the people that he had surrounding him. But the thing about David, once he became king, David was a worshiper. He instituted actually worship in the house of God. Where before with Moses, as they wandered through the desert. They had the sacrifices, but they didn't have musicians and all this other stuff. David is the one who started that. David instituted 24 hours a day, seven days a week, praise, prayer, and worship in the tabernacle of God. He was a worshiper. David was richly blessed by God. He never met an enemy in battle he couldn't defeat. He was powerful. Kings from all around began to send him money. And, and pay homage to his kingdom because they recognized that David was a powerful king. 
So he had notoriety, he had fame, he had fortune, he had everything that a person could desire. Matter of fact, after he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, after he conquered Jerusalem, set that up as the capital city, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back. It says in the scripture that he then took more wives and had even more children, which in that day and age, that meant the hand of blessing was upon him. That, that this was just what people knew of David. He was a richly blessed man. And he wrote many songs. If you open the Bible to the book of Psalms, many of the songs we have are written by David. He was a worshiper. And in Psalm 27, he writes something that reveals what his heart is truly. Out of everything that God has done in his life, of all the many victories, of all the blessings, the wealth, the fame, the women, the everything that he could possibly have in his life to fulfill his life, he begins to write in this psalm the one thing he wants more than anything else. In Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, The one thing I've asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may what? Dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire or meditate in his temple. So think about what David is saying. He's saying, I have everything this world could offer me. I have it all. But there's one thing I want more than anything else. One thing I want more than anything else. One thing on his mind. That he could dwell in the house of the Lord. Remember at this time, the house of the Lord was the tabernacle. It was the tent that housed the presence of the Lord. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. So David is saying, as he's, as he's king, he wasn't a Levite, so he wasn't permitted to be in the tabernacle like the Levites were. So David was withheld from the inner sanctuary where God's presence was. But David is saying, there's one thing on my mind and my heart. I want to be in the presence of God, and I want to gaze upon God all the days of my life. I'm willing to trade all this other stuff to be right there with God. That that's a greater treasure. That's a greater prize. And he says something very important. Not only does he want to be in the presence of God all the days of his life, but he says, I want to gaze upon the beauty or the glory of the Lord with his own eyes. That word gaze in the original language can also mean not just to see, but to be as a seer. It's a prophetic word. So he's saying, I want to be in God's presence. I want to be so overcome with his presence that as a seer or a prophet, that I am brought into an ecstatic state of encounter with the presence of the Lord. That, that his presence overwhelms me, comes upon me, that I'm caught up in spiritual ecstasy, overwhelmed with the goodness of the Lord. So it's not just I want to see the fire of God on the throne. He says, I want to be consumed. From the inside out, with the presence of the Lord, overwhelmed in his goodness, to experience him in profound and powerful ways. Why would he want to do that? Because only by experiencing God like that can we know him more intimately and more personally. See, he doesn't just want powerful visions of the Lord. He says, and I want to meditate or inquire in his temple. I want to meditate, which means I want to encounter him, yes. But then I want to dwell on and contemplate and soak in, take in, reflect, or reason through everything I'm experiencing in a way that makes a profound difference and change in my life. It's not just about having a, a neat experience when I come to church. It's being marked by God by the experience that I am different, that I'm transformed. 
So, yes, I want to see him. I want to be in his presence. I want to feel his presence, but not just so I have the willy-nilly feels and, and, and I have a story to tell. I want to be marked different when I encounter the presence of God. This man had everything, but there was one thing he wanted more than anything, and that's what he wanted. What is he telling God? He says, in other words, I value your presence and your goodness more than all the wealth and all the comfort this world has to offer. Your worship, your worship pursuits. In verse 7, he goes on to say, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. He's not, this isn't an internal thing. It's not just a passing thought that he has. He's crying out to God. In his times of prayer. God, when I'm, when I'm crying out to you about this one thing, hear me. Hear me, O oh Lord. Hear what I'm saying. Hear my heart. Be gracious to me and answer me. When I cry out to you, God, that I want to encounter your presence, I'm asking you to hear what I'm saying and answer me. And then God responds in verse 8. He says, you have said, somebody say, have said. Notice this is past tense. He's recounting not what God is saying, but what God's already declared. You have said, seek my face. And so my heart responds, O Lord, your face do I seek. You have said, seek my face, and I respond, O Lord, do I seek you. God speaks. It's an invitation God's already made to David. Seek my face. That word face is an, can also be translated my presence. The face of the Lord is the presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. So God's already invited David to seek him, to seek him, and to find him. Do you think God asks us to do things that are not possible? Even if it's impossible with man, all things are possible with God. So anytime God gives you an invitation, it's not because he just wants to watch you squirm trying to figure it out. Really? Think about it. Why would God say, seek my face, if you couldn't seek his face and find his face? But don't don't we kind of struggle with that? I know I do. God says, believe, and you shall have what you ask for. I'm asking, but I'm struggling with believing that I'm going to get it. Because I struggle with faith. I struggle with taking God at his word. But God says, seek him. Seek his face. Seek my presence. And David responds by saying, oh Lord, your face is what I'm seeking. I'm going after it. My heart says to you. This is important that we see it's his heart that's responding. It's his inner man. It's the internal essence. It's the birthplace of where love and faith come from. He's responding out of his inner man. God, my heart of hearts, it's your presence. It's not my mind that says, yeah, that's a good idea. But I'm not so sure. It's my heart. God, there's a burning desire in my heart. And the only thing that can satisfy that is your presence. It's the only thing. That my heart is leaning in and saying, God, I need you desperately. And in verse 13, he declares his faith. You said, seek me. So God, I'm seeking 
And I believe, somebody say, I believe. And I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is both a here, a now and not yet proclamation. Will David see the goodness of God in the land of the living at the resurrection? Yes. When Jesus comes back and he sits on his glorious throne and he resurrects all the saints of the, of the body and, and, uh, and bride of Christ, the saints will be resurrected, will dwell with him forever and ever and ever. We will see the glory of the Lord in the resurrection in the last day. But David is also saying, I believe I'm going to see it with my own eyes in the here and now. It's both future and it's also for the now. Do you realize that every time God moves, we see his glory? Every time the presence of the Lord touches a person, we see his glory. Every time someone gives their lives to Christ and becomes a child of God, we see his glory. By the way, we had someone accept Christ last week. Woo! Every time there's a healing, every time God moves, we are encountering the glory of the Lord. And God is saying, seek me. Seek my face. David was convinced that God wouldn't have invited him to seek if it wasn't possible that he could be found. So he declares, I believe. I'm going to see the glory of the Lord. I'm going to see him. And then his focus changes from himself to those who would sing or read this psalm. To encourage others, don't give up in your seeking. In verse 14, he says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. So when we see God, is it always going to happen immediately? Sometimes it does. Sometimes, like Elijah, we begin to pray and the fire falls before we finish our prayer, and God shows up and it's awesome. Other times, like fasting and prayer, we have to contend, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, we have to contend for the blessing. And David's saying, don't give up in the journey. Don't stop short. Don't, don't give up before the blessing comes because you will see the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. You will see it with your own eyes if you don't quit, if you don't give up. You've got to activate your heart, key into your faith, and wait on the Lord. The same invitation has been made to you and I. In Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalmist, revealing the heart of God, he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That word taste means to perceive through examination. Taste or sample. In other words, when he's saying, come and taste, he's saying, come and engage with the Lord. Come and engage with him. Step out and, and, and engage with God. This is your invitation to an encounter with the Lord. But it's not just a one-sided invitation. God's not just saying, come and seek me. Come and seek me. No, it's not just come and taste. It's taste and see. Somebody say, taste and see. So seek, come and taste, come and seek, come and gauge, but also you need to see. God's not putting all the responsibility on us for the encounter. The word see means to look at, inspect, perceive, consider, behold, discern, make to enjoy, or have an experience. God literally wants you to experience his presence in your life. To gaze. To see means to gaze. What did David say? I want to gaze upon your glory in your presence. God is inviting each and every one of us to 
seek after him, and also experience him. And this is an invitation made to all who trust in the Lord, to all who believe in the Son of God and take refuge in him. To taste and see, to experience his goodness. I love the word goodness here. It has two meanings. It means to be pleasant or agreeable to your senses. This is your physical self. Come and experience the goodness of the Lord. So this word goodness means to be pleasant or agreeable to your senses, but it also means to be pleasant or agreeable to your higher nature, which is your spiritual self. So the encounter God wants you to have is not just one you feel in your body, but one that overtakes your soul. The one you feel both physically and spiritually. He wants to rewire us in his presence. So when you experience his goodness, it's his presence that overwhelms the totality of your being. So if you think about being in a, in a church meeting or, or a setting where people are coming forward for prayer and you see some weird things take place, there's some weird stuff that happens in the church when the Spirit of God is moving. And I'm just going to be honest, it's weird. Why? Because it's not natural. It's super natural. If everything we experienced was natural, nothing would be different. But we serve a supernatural God. What happens when people are touched? Sometimes people start crying. We have this running joke at prayer night that we have to like stock up on tissues because somebody's going to cry at some point. Sometimes it's the same people over and over again. But somebody's going to cry. We all end up there. Why? Because when God's moving, it's emotional. Some people laugh uncontrollably. And that's awesome. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Some people shake and tremble. Some people fall out like they're passing out. You're praying for them one minute and then, whoop, oh, there they go. Why? Because they're so overwhelmed in the peace of God. It's just like falling on air. There are physical manifestations that happen in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he's awesome. He's awesome. And his goodness is overwhelming. But it's not just physical encounters God is interested in. He wants to overwhelm our spiritual self. He wants to satisfy us in our spirit that's unlike anything in this world that can satisfy us. In Psalm 103, it says he satisfies us more than the richest feast. Like when I go to Golden Corral or I go to a buffet, I get pretty satisfied. It's about 14 plates of sushi at the, at the sushi restaurant. Um, my goodness, like I, I can eat some food. But you know what? After a few hours and a couple trips to the restroom, I'm not so satisfied. I'm ready to go back. You realize when God comes into your life, there's a peace and a filling and a joy, like your whole life could be falling apart, but there's something in you that just keeps going because you have something that can never fail, sustaining you and moving you through. That's the kind of encounter he wants us to have. It's unlike anything man has ever made or that we could indulge in. It motivates us to seek him more, to go for more, to keep searching for him, to know him more deeply, to love him more deeply, to turn away from our sins, to walk in righteousness, to love his word, to share him with others, to know his heart, to go for greater and deeper connection with God. Why? Because we realize the greatest thing we could ever experience, his love, his joy, his peace, his goodness is the very thing our hearts have always been crying out for. When God touches you and your faith goes from an idea to a reality, it awakens something in you that makes you hungry for God in a way that you've never been before. It, it just awakens like, oh my gosh, if this, is, if this is a glimpse of the glory of God, and this is who God is, and this is what God has for me, then i got to get some more of that. I, I, I can't get enough of that. Like all this other stuff, that doesn't matter as much as this. Like, I'll fast for a week to be filled by the Holy Spirit. 
Like God's encounter, his goodness is just so overwhelming. That's why the psalm ends like this. Oh, the joy of those who take refuge in him. When I taste and see that God is good, I wake up to the reality of the joys of those who take refuge in him. That, that phrase, the joys, in the original language, it's an interjection. And as an interjection, it means, oh, happy man, or happy is the one, or blessed be the one who take refuge in him. When we take refuge in God, when we encounter his presence, when we seek his face, we wake up to the reality of what true joy really is. Because it's found in the presence of the Lord. The end result of an encounter with God is your good. It's a blessing for you. God wants to build you up, not tear you down. He, want to he wants to bless you, not curse you. He wants to love on you, not lash out at you. He wants to overwhelm you in his goodness. Because that's what's best for you. And God wants your very best. This is his great delight. Now, if you're like me, you might struggle with that belief that God wants to touch you. You might struggle with that. Man, like, yeah, I could go forward and be prayed for, but I don't even know if God would really even want to touch me. Or if I could encounter his goodness. Or if I'm good enough or I'm qualified enough. I'm not as deserving as maybe somebody else because I haven't been to the church long enough, or whatever I things that swirl through our mind. But you know what? If we look at Scripture, there's a guy named Paul, who was known as a man named Saul, who was actually on his way to kill some Christians when God showed up and touched his life. So if God is willing to touch a murderer, imagine how willing he is to touch you. God doesn't reserve an encounter with those who are more deserving because none of us deserve it. Our Pastor Joey, think about what I've done or who I've been or what I struggle with. You think he can really encounter me with his presence? I mean, like, don't you have to be a good person for God to, to like, touch or, or to encounter? Beloved, if God saved you, if he rescued you from your sins... There's no other reason that he would do that other than he delights in you. And if you don't believe me, Psalm 18, verse 19, it's a verse that really just grabbed a hold of my heart this week. It says, he led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because why? He what? Do you understand that God delights in you? He delights in you. Well, what's that look like? It looks like, you know, when your kids are small and they're just doing their thing and they're, they're drawing pictures or they're coloring or they're trying to walk for the first time and it might be messy, but it puts a smile on your face. You get overwhelmed. That's called delight. God delights in you. How do you know? Because he saved you. He saved you. So he delights in you. And because he delights in you, he wants you to encounter his goodness. He wants to pour his goodness out on you. Jesus knew this to be true. Which is why one of the most profound statements of the Bible is found in John chapter 16. This is a passage that changed my life. It changed how I pursue God. Again, this is Jesus. You guys know who Jesus is? Just check. I know it's cold in here. My nose is frozen. I'm about to get an icicle any minute here. Okay? Like, if, you, if you're going to be like this, I won't judge you because I, I want to do that too. All right, this is Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. The Son of God. The Word who existed before time. Right in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same in the beginning with God. This is who we're talking about, just so it's clear, not Jesus, Jesus. Jesus works at the restaurant down the road. This is the Son of God we're talking about. John 16, he says to his disciples, 
I'm going away to the one who sent me, to the Father. And one of, not one of you is asking, where am I going? Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. Think about it. Jesus is telling them, I'm about to die, and I'm going away. And instead of asking, where are you going? They're grieving. If I was walking with Jesus physically for three years, and he was about to go away, the fullness of God, his goodness, complete grace and truth, encapsulated in a human body, I'd be grieving too. The hope of glory, my heart's desire is with me, and now it's getting ready to be taken away. I would be grieving too. He says, you're not asking where I'm going, but you're grieving. Verse 7, he says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. It's best for you that I go away. It's best. It's best. It's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. I know we're having this great time, guys. You're watching me do all this miraculous stuff. You're experiencing all these things with me. But I have to go. And it's actually better that I leave because the advocate won't come unless I go. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I'm going to the Father. I'm, I'm making salvation possible. You'll see me no more. And judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Aren't you happy that the ruler of this world's already been judged? The enemy's been judged. Verse 12, but there's so much more I want to tell you. You can't bear it now. Why? Because you're grieving. But verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he's heard. He will tell you about the future, and he will bring me glory by telling you whatever he received from me. So think about what Jesus is saying. There's so many things that we could pull out of this passage. There's just a few things I want to key on. Jesus had to go away. Why? Because if he didn't go, the Spirit of God could not come. And he said, it's best that I leave. It's best that I go. Why? Because the Bible says God was in Christ in fullness. While Jesus was here in the flesh, the Spirit of God was in him completely. There wasn't any to go around. It was in him. So he had to go, he had to go back to glory to be transfigured into his true nature so that he could share the Holy Spirit with us. That's why I said, if I go, I will send him. I have to go so I can send him. And it's better for us that the Spirit of God is here. Why? So we're not living vicariously through Jesus and his relationship with God. But that we're able to have our own relationship with God. We can know God through Jesus personally. Or we can be united with God through the Holy Spirit personally. There are a lot of churches that make much about Jesus, and we should. He's our Savior. He's the gateway to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But the Spirit of God is our connection to Jesus. 
by being connected to the Spirit of God, we are eternally connected to Jesus. And the Spirit's job is revelation. He says, I'll reveal sin, he'll reveal judgment and salvation to the world, he'll reveal righteousness, and he'll glorify Jesus. How? By revealing Jesus to the world. By revealing Jesus. Well, what's so important about revealing Jesus? Did you know that in the Old Testament, Jesus had many names. The Word was one of them. But so was he being called the angel of the presence. The angel of the presence. When you read the Old Testament and you see how God shows up in human form to talk to Abraham. When God's angel, the angel of the presence, was with the tabernacle and meeting with Moses and around the Red Sea, that was Jesus pre-incarnate. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the presence of God. When God says to seek my face, to seek my presence, what is he saying? Seek Jesus, the Lord. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. To reveal him. The presence of the Lord. And this is why faith is so vital. Because the entry point to receiving the Spirit of God is first placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In God's one and only Son. The Savior of the world. Becoming a child of God. That is the ticket that opens the door for the Spirit of God to not only come live inside of you, but also to come upon you. To reveal God's goodness in your life, to reveal his presence, for you to experience the face of the Lord personally. And how does the Spirit of God do it? He does it in many ways. He reveals it through the word of the Lord, through the will of the Lord, and by letting you encounter the presence of the Lord. And maybe you're here today and you believe in Jesus, but you've not encountered the Spirit of God. You've tasted, you haven't yet tasted the good things of the Lord physically. There's a there's a disconnect. You like hear about the presence, the presence, the presence, but you don't have that encounter, that experience. But you want to deepen your understanding. Do you realize God wants for you to have a deeper understanding? He wants that for you. You're ready for more. You're ready to take a risk, to walk in faith, to pursue God in faith, to experience his goodness for yourself, that's your heart today. You're like, I, yes, I want that, but I've just never encountered it. I'm not sure how to go for it. What, what, what do I do? I, I have really two things to say to you. The first comes out of two verses in Luke 11 through 13. This is where we key in the word of God, the foundation of our faith. Right here, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? To those who ask him. Jesus said, the presence of the Lord, the Spirit of God, will come to those who ask. In John 3, 34, it says, for he, talking about Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus has promised to pour out his Spirit in the last days. So the Father's going to send the Spirit, he's going to give it to all who ask, and Jesus is going to pour him out on behalf of the Father without measure. Which means there's no measure you have to meet other than faith and asking the Lord. God's already invited you to taste and see, to seek. So to receive the Spirit of God, you simply just need to ask in faith. And believe that Jesus will do what he said he will do. That he's going to send the Spirit without measure. And this is where your faith needs to kick in here. This is where my faith needs to kick in. Not just mentally understanding the concept. This is where faith has to arise. This isn't a time to test whether or not the scripture is true. It's time to believe it's true. Today, I'm believing it's true. 
I'm going to ask, and God is going to send the Holy Spirit. And then it's time to act on that belief. James, in his letter to the church, he said, don't ask God for things, and then be filled with doubt. He says, ask without doubt. Be unwavering, because doubt is like a ship being rocked to and fro in the sea. You're wavering between two loyalties. You're wavering between God, His Word, His promises, the Spirit, and your own understanding. Well, this is all weird, and, and I've never encountered it before. I don't really get it. So God, and until I understand it, I'm not going to pursue it. And God's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. You trust and believe first, and then you get the understanding. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but I reward all those who diligently seek me. So faith comes first, and then comes the reward. We have it backwards in this life. We want the reward before we can offer faith. That's called religion. I do all this stuff, and then I'll get faith. No, you have faith, and then God blesses all the stuff. That's what the Reformation brought us. The understanding we had it backwards. If I give, if I tithe, if I show up, if I donate, if I do this, if I do this, if I say these prayers 15 times, three times a day, and I do all this stuff, then I'll have the faith enough for God to be pleased with me. No, beloved, He loved you before you were even righteous. He loved you as a sinner. He gave His Son to die for you. And through faith and trust in Christ, you've been redeemed. It's out of the love that He had for you that you can then respond in love to Him. It's by trusting in Him that good works begin to flow. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get faith after works. You get works because of faith. It's the byproduct. So it's not once I get it, then I can receive it. No. Believe it. Receive it. And then you'll get it. Ask and do not doubt. Second thing comes from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start breaking some religious bondage today. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is unloading revival through the Holy Spirit in Samaria. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria accepted God's message, they were saved. What's the message? It's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Put your faith and trust in him and you'll be saved. The people of Samaria received God's message. So what they do? They sent Peter and John there. As soon as Peter and John arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's break this down. Philip goes and preaches the gospel. He has an altar call. Many come forward. They pray, pray the prayer of salvation. They accept Christ. He's like, oh, man, this is great. We have all these new believers in Jesus. He looks around. He says, oh, there's some water. He goes and baptizes them all in water. But they were still missing something. Many of us grew up in churches where all we had to do is pray the prayer, get dunked, and now we are on the membership roll. When you receive Jesus, you are saved. The Bible's very clear. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. It's also clear we should be baptized as we follow God's example by going under the water to be united in his death and coming back out of the water to be raised with Christ. It's important. But there's a third thing. There is a third thing. There's the coming of the Holy Spirit. The thing that changes your life from being religious to being alive in Christ. Man, when I had my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, and God's been faithful. He's done things for me and with me and through, through things I can't even comprehend. That I'm not even qualified for. But when I encountered the Spirit of God, something came alive in me. I, my wife and I, we talk about this all the time. I always felt like, man, there's got to be something more 
than this. I mean, if you've been a part of our setup and teardown team week after week, I'm sure there's some times you've been thinking, man, there's got to be something more than this. All this service, it's so tiring. You walk into a cold auditorium, God, there's got to be something more than this. We have some property, please, we need $2 million, we need to put a building on it. Amen. Amen. High belief. But more than a building, more than comfort in a room, God has a fire to your spirit. Something to make it real in your life where we're worshiping and you're looking around and you're like, man, why are these people raising their hands and dancing? They're weird. You'll get it. Because it's not just something we like to do. It's because we can sense the presence of the Lord. And when the presence of the Lord is moving, it makes you want to move. It, you feel it. And so what happened in Samaria? The apostles laid hands on them and prayed that they would receive the Spirit because they hadn't received it yet. Some of you have not received the Spirit. And you need to receive the Spirit. You're saved. You've been baptized. But there's the missing part of your life that God brings it full circle. And this is where we're breaking down barriers because we live in a culture, in a nation, where many people think they can do Jesus on their own. They come into church. They may participate in a volunteer position, but they want no emotional connection. They don't want to connect and be intimately connected with any of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you're missing a vital and main component to your spiritual life. Before they could receive the Spirit, they had to have the apostles lay their hands on them and pray for them. Some of you need to stop thinking that you'll get everything that you want or need from God alone. Have some people receive the Spirit of God by themselves? Yes, I've heard testimony. But that's the exception, not the rule. The church is the church. We are the body for a reason. He put us all here for a purpose. You're here. And when we have response time, when we have response time at the end, that's not for you to sit and watch everybody else come forward. That's for you to get your butt down here and encounter the Lord. That's what it's for. I don't stand down here for my own good. I don't. We get in now and go to lunch. I'm actually kind of hungry. But I want God to work and move. I want to see God. I want to be a part of that. I want to see his face. I want to encounter his presence. I want you to encounter his presence. I want you to know why I'm a nut for Jesus. I want you to know. I want to catch you when you fall. I want to wipe the slobber off your face because you've been laughing. I want to get you a tissue because you're weeping in the goodness of the Lord. I want to be a part of that. Why? Because it does something to my heart and my spirit. And so when we have that time, when we invite people to come forward, it's not because we're down there for our own good. We're down there because we want to be a part of what God is doing. And I know Jesus is here waiting for you to answer the call to the invitation. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come. Part of the seeking his presence is humbling yourself. And when you humble yourself for ministry at the altar, what you're saying is, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't do it with my own understanding and my own strength and my own power. If I could, it would have already happened by now. And so I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to trust that you've brought me here to this place for a reason, that you've put these people in my life for a reason, that we're a body, we're a family. And as we all operate in our own function, we'll be healthy, built up, and strengthened. And so I'm going to come forward, and I'm going to confess what I need to confess. I'm going to ask for prayer for what I need prayer for. I'm going to lean in to have other people come around me so that together, as your body, you can work and move in my life. And I'm going to come. And I believe that God will receive that kind of faith. God is going to honor that.
Some of you, you've been waiting for a long time for more. But what's in your way is the willingness to pursue it to the lengths that you need to pursue it. You've got a line that you don't cross. And I think what God is saying is, would you please step over the line? Would you take the risk? Would you be willing to give up your dignity? And like what David said, and wait on the Lord. You might come forward today and nothing may happen. It's possible. But that doesn't mean he won't visit you in your room tonight because you came forward. Wait on the Lord. Keep coming after it. Keep pursuing the Lord until you encounter the blessing because the blessing is coming. He's invited you to taste and see. And I believe the more we taste and see, the more we're going to yield ourselves to encounters with the Spirit, be filled and empowered with His presence, the more spiritual we'll become. Why? Because the more we'll know His heart. And the more intimately we know the Lord, the more we'll want to be like Him, doing what He's doing, working with Him the way that He's working. As the response music begins to play, a question I have for you today as we come to a close is do you want more of God in your life? Do you want more of his presence in your life? Do you want to taste and see the goodness of the Lord? If you want to see the glory of God, then I would encourage you, as the music begins to play, to not wait for someone else to be first. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come down. If you want to experience the Lord, you want to seek him. Don't wait for someone else to be first. You get up from your seat and you come down so we can pray with you and pray over you. You come. Let today be the day. I believe God is here waiting. He's with us. And we're going to watch God do a mighty work. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. God, I know today there are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things happening and moving. The temperature in the room, issues and problems with life. But God, we believe your word today. Your word is true. Your word is true. Jesus, you said if we ask, we shall receive. You said if we ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit, that he's going to give them. And that you're going to pour it out without measure. And so God, today, and as best as we know how, with the faith that we have, God, we ask you to pour your spirit out. That your presence would move. And today we'd encounter the face of the Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, right now for everyone coming forward that you would touch them in Jesus' name. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, God, that that would be their first step to say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior today. Forgive me of my sins. Come and dwell within my heart and my life. Be my Lord and Savior, God, that that would be the first move they make. And then, God, as we lay hands on them, I pray that you would rock them with your presence. In Jesus' name. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.